Hello, this is Joyce Chang, Chair of Global Research at J.P. Morgan Chase, and you're listening to All Into Account, our global cross-asset strategy podcast, where we take a look at the key trends impacting financial markets and the global economy. Well, last week, we hosted our annual flagship investor conference at the spring meetings at the IMF World Bank in Washington, D.C. We had more than a 1,000 clients, 50 different sessions featuring policymakers from the developed markets and emerging markets, where we conducted meetings over the course of three days, as well as our investor survey. I would say that the mood at the spring meetings was downbeat, but it was not overly bearish in our view, nor was it complacent. If anything, fragmentation, setting up guardrails, and re-globalization, not decoupling, were among the key buzzwords and catchphrases. Last week's meetings, policymakers reconfirmed our view that inflation remains sticky, with central banks committed to higher for longer, since inflation is not converging back to target path. The clearest consensus view that we saw out of the the investor conference was that the market pricing for rate cuts in the second half of the year is premature. There was also a lot of concern raised about the debt ceiling debate that is coming up in the Congress and the ongoing tensions between the U.S. and China. Speakers indicate that a recession is likely still coming, but the timing and magnitude are uncertain as the expansion is not yet breaking down. Policymakers also made it very clear that they're prepared to take emergency measures to ensure financial stability given the speed of the crises. So very pleased now to turn to the senior team research leaders to talk about the conference key takeaways. So I'd like to now turn to Bruce Kassman, our chief economist and head of global economics research. So Bruce, you've argued that recessions generate credit tightening, but that the reverse isn't clear as we need to account for the business cycle and also the size of the shock. So how much of a shock do you see to credit growth from the recent financial crises? What are the various economic and financial indicators telling you about recession probabilities and the potential timing for recession? So one of the key elements of our macroeconomic outlook is that the economy is not on a sustainable path. However, we also believe there's enough resilience in the uh, near term, there is uh, supports coming from fading drags to prevent any meaningful risk of going into recession uh, around the middle part of this year. Obviously, the recent stresses in the U.S. banking sector add some uncertainty around that forecast, but we haven't fundamentally changed our view. That's in part because we see the stresses generated in the banking system as being contained by Fed liquidity programs. Uh, We're not seeing significant spill out to non-bank financial uh, sector at this point in time. Uh, It's also because we do believe the Fed is adjusting its rate guidance, which looked like it was going to move towards significantly higher rates uh, in response to the stress. But primarily, we think this is a drag that's going to build gradually. Uh, We think at this point in time, the banking sector Um, is going to be seeing a material rise in funding costs, a material shift in its supervisor advisory guidance that's going to lead to tighter credit. But I think those forces work relatively gradually. And perhaps most importantly, uh, we think the position of the U.S. uh, business sector, the position of the U.S. household sector right now is not particularly credit dependent. And in that sense, I mean, 
that spending levels are not unusually high. They're not vulnerable to a pullback because of some tightening in credit. Uh, the financing gap of the corporate sector is effectively zero right now. Companies in the aggregate are not funding their investments with a big reliance on external sources. Households are still normalizing the usage of credit after having been forced to save significantly earlier in the pandemic recovery. And as a result of that, uh, we think the impact in the near term in the next three to six months will be relatively gradual. But having said that, we would emphasize that over time, the drags on the banking sector from a credit tightening point of view are going to build. Over time, the interaction of that with the Fed that is not going to be able to ease policy if the economy isn't sliding into recession is going to get bigger. And I think this does feed part of our story that while we're not that vulnerable right now to going down, the combination of a Fed that won't ease and possibly could have to hike more in the face of sticky and persistent inflation, uh, the gradual building of vulnerabilities in the economy with credit being one of the factors does suggest that this expansion will end early, just not today. And with that, I'll end. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Bruce, for leading off this discussion. Let me now turn to Jan Lois in our strategic research group. So Jan, we've heard a real divergence of views on where real rates are going, with the IMF analysis suggesting that the recent increases in real interest rates are temporary and will be reversed when inflation comes back under control. This is what they put out in their April um, IMF World Economic Outlook. Now, I know that you disagree, and we've also seen that the Congressional Budget Office sees higher real rates from here. Where do you come in on this debate on where real interest rates are going over the longer term? Well, Joyce, there is indeed a lively debate on where interest rates, real interest rates, will be five, ten years from now. We've seen a steady decline in real bond deals and real short rates over 40 years now, getting an us into the negative interest rate environment. We think this environment is over and we'll see a normalization. IMF and economists generally are on the same block, but don't think interest rates will rise that much or eventually. And, uh, IMF is arguing that real short rates will return to about half a percent over the next decade. At the moment, we're higher because of tight monetary policy, but they argue that eventually inflation will be under control and then central banks can move real short rates down at half a percent. Real with inflation, they hope at 2%, we're in the mid 2%. Handle on Fed funds, nominal, and the economist consensus of US economists is arguing that um, the 10-year Treasury nominal will be then low 3%. The Congressional Budget Office is more worried about increases in debt to GDP. They see a 20 percentage point increase in debt to GDP in the U.S. federal debt over the next decade, and that is under positive conditions of no big recession, no crisis. So, and a sunsetting of the Trump tax cuts. They have a high 3% handle. And Alex Weiss and I have been looking at these issues and looking at all the forces driving real yields. We're a bit higher, but not massively. 
we think real T-bills, real Fed funds, more one percent, and real ten-year Treasuries like two and a half, which with our view a bit more like three percent inflation, we think about a mid-five handle on ten-year Treasuries as an average level at the end of the decade. The forces driving this are five of them. Uh, we see demographics, an increasing share of old people like me uh, relative to working people to driving savings rates down. The steady increase in government debt that the CBO is warning us about to de-dollarization, which means given the geopolitics, a number of countries will want to reduce their uh, vulnerability to the US dollar. Steady increase in climate investing, green investing that is needed, offsetting any decline in um, round investing, if you want to call that, and uh, then increase in macro volatility, which will keep or uh, will raise a term premium relative to the last 10, 15 years. So overall, we're talking about a normalization of interest rates back to about 20 years ago. Not a dramatic environment and actually quite positive for financial markets overall. Well, thank you so much, John, for those comments on um, where real interest rates are going. And we have had an outlier view for higher rates. So let me now turn the focus to emerging markets. And I'm going to turn to Jahangir Aziz, our head of EM Economics Research, to talk about the whole topic of deglobalization. Where are we today? So, um, Jahangir, in our investor survey, deglobalization and the supply chain realignment were seen as the greatest risk over a five-year time horizon. Yet, the speakers at the conference pointed out that at the macro level, we really just aren't seeing this in the data yet. In fact, one of the speakers said this is a triumph of narrative over reality, and that um, the U.S.-China competition is actually more of a policy competition than an actual commercial phenomena. So how are you seeing the state of U.S.-China relations, and how much decoupling has actually occurred between the U.S. and China? Thanks, Joyce. So along with, you know, uh, you know debt ceiling issues in the U.S. and um, with, you know, the Fed, clearly China was one of the most uh, discussed topics. And you're right, I think there is a shift that is taking place. Um, I think people are no longer talking, for example, of a decoupling per se. In fact, uh, many of the speakers in the various sessions stress the fact that this is not a decoupling uh, between U.S. and China. And, you know, the world is not going to get bifurcated into two separate islands. But rather, it is selective de-risking and selective de-risking de in certain areas. And I think this, this is an important distinction uh, that needs to be made because, you know, we had this, you know, underlying view for quite some time that, uh, in a world in which things got decoupled, then, you know, other countries, particularly emerging market countries, would be forced to choose sides. So I think in a world in which both sides, or at least the U.S. side, is looking for uh, selective de-risking in the emerging technologies, um, I think, you know, that, that choice doesn't have to be made. Uh, and I think that in terms of, you know, where we, where, where we stand uh, right now, uh, you know, part uh, answer to your question on, you know, where, where do we stand on the relocation per se? Um, I think, you know, the evidence is that the, there are two sort of drivers of relocation that has been un ongoing. One is uh, simply, you know, corporates hedging 
the supply side uh, risks that they face, the disruptions that they face post the pandemic. And that's what's you know, pushing for corporates, both uh, domestic Chinese corporates as well as multinational corporates to move part of the supply chain out of China um, into neighboring countries. And that's sort of part of the China plus one policy. And I think that relocation is taking place across all sectors. So, you know, uh, from the traditional sectors to the non-traditional sectors. And we've seen countries like Vietnam, Mexico, India actually benefit from that. Uh, but there's another kind of re relocation, the relocation that is related to national security. Um, and I think that's sort of been termed variously as uh, near-shoring near, near or friend-shoring. And I think that relocation is the one where people focus on, which is a relocation that has been driven by national security concerns. And this is the relocation where uh, speakers sort of emphasized that this is about de-risking and not decoupling. Uh, that yes, you will have regulations move towards creating small yards with very tall uh, regulatory fences to make sure that certain technologies are kept within you know, the, the circle of trust, so to speak. Um, and, but, you know, it is unlikely to be that, you know, everything else will also be uh, affected by it. And I think it is in this uh, French shoring or the national security related de de relocation where, you know, we are still in the first stages of it. We don't really know where it, where it will go and what are the sectors. We know that in semiconductors, it has moved along quite a bit. But in other sectors, such as advanced pharmaceuticals, robotics, uh, quantum technology, et cetera, these are still in the early stages. I think one should also make a distinction that the impact of these two kinds of relocation is going to be very different. Um, one, you know, in the case of, you know, the China plus one policy, where you simply want to hedge some of your supply side risks by operating out of some other country. I think they're the countries that are that will benefit are the ones that we've already seen benefit benefiting, as I said, you know, Vietnam, India and, and Mexico. You know, these are the countries where labor costs are low, there is ample amount of human capital, there is sufficient amount of infrastructure, a reasonable ecosystem to support such relocation. But I think it's the other kind of relocation, the relocation that is being driven by national security concerns, the French shoring, the near shoring. I think that's where, uh, you know, it is not necessarily the case that um, corporates will be asked to relocate or will re relocate to areas uh, where, you know, transaction costs are low um, and, and, uh, and it's driven by cost consideration. It will be driven by security considerations. So if it's being driven by security consideration, then that supply chain will likely get relocated where it is probably closer to the West in political sense, in national security sense, rather than being relocated in where the you know where where is most effective cost-wise. Uh, so I think that the countries that benefit, so to speak, from the second kind of relocation, the national security driven relocation, is going to be very different from the first set of countries. Um, and I think that you know if we look forward to uh, you know, where the world is going, where this globalization is going because of relocation. Uh, clearly, uh, it is uh, going to be relocated to a higher cost center, whether it is being relocated to a higher cost center because of, you know, supply chain disruption concerns in the traditional industries 
or because of national security concerns in the non-traditional emerging technologies, um, we are gravitating towards moving production to a higher cost center. And that necessarily means uh, that you know, everything else remaining the same. We are likely to see uh, you know, the world of you know, structural disinflation that we saw since the global financial crisis more or less come to an end. You know, the spike in inflation that is taking place right now is separate. But, you know, once the spike in inflation dies down, do we settle to a lower inflation environment or a higher inflation environment? And I think we are most likely going to settle to a higher inflation environment. Uh, lastly, I would point out, uh, Joyce, that uh, in terms of the actual uh, size of the relocation, I think it matters that, you know, the countries where the relocation is taking place, uh, these are countries, whether you, you know, throw in India or Mexico or Vietnam, in fact, if you throw in all the emerging market countries, I don't think they have the size to or the capacity to absorb the kind of FDI-related supply chain, uh, MNC supply chain that has been established in China. And so, you know, size matters in this case. I don't think they have the capacity to absorb any material uh, large relocation from out of China. Um, and, the, and the data shows that. So if you think about, you know, foreign direct investment in China, just greenfield uh, foreign direct investment. So I'm not even talking about gross FDI, just greenfield foreign direct investment in 2021 was the highest on record at $181 billion. In 2022, it surpassed that and, and registered $189 billion of greenfield investment. Uh, so in short, I would, in summary, I would say, uh, Joyce, that you know, we are moving to a world with selective de-risking rather than decoupling at the policy front. Um, on, the, on a day-to-day -day basis, the relocation is largely taking place driven by considerations of, you know, simply to hedge supply-side risk disruptions that happened post the pandemic. Uh, the, the, the relocation that might take place uh, in emerging technologies because of regulation, et cetera, uh, that still hasn't sort of, you know, sh shown up in the data, except perhaps in semiconductors. That's the big thing. Uh, but that is likely to be limited to these emerging technologies, and it is unlikely to spread across uh, all kinds of supply chains uh, that, you know, the, the globalized world has come to, uh, come, come, you know, have seen over the last, you know, 15, 20 years. Well, thank you so much, Jahan, here for, um, just bringing us up to speed on the latest developments in U.S.-China relations and how um, the official creditors are looking at the state of play. I'd like to now turn to Luisa Ganyas, our global head of macro research, and really talk about um, what the central banks are telling us from emerging markets. So, Luis, what were the similarities and contrasts between the emerging market central bank messages across regions in our conference? How dependent are emerging market stories on what the Fed does and whether a U.S. recession plays out? I mean, because we've seen quite a bit of resilience in emerging markets. And what is the risk that some of these financial stability risks that were highlighted during the meetings spill over to the emerging markets? Um, do you really think that there's much scope for the emerging markets um, to ease earlier here? Thanks, Joyce. There were actually, you know, quite a few contrasts between the responses of EM central banks uh, to the questions of, you know, how dependent their policies are on whatever the Fed does. Uh, when we look at uh, what uh, 
EM, uh, sorry, EM Asia uh, central banks uh, uh, were saying to the extent that inflation was not much of an issue and they didn't hike too much in cumulative terms over the past year and a half, they are uh, in a way biding their responses or whatever they do from here to uh, the next steps of the Fed. Uh, and this is a stark contrast to uh, the message from central banks in Latin America or CE or even South Africa, where because they have had to hike a lot more, inflation was a lot more of a problem, uh, they do have more of a cushion to have a bit more, let's say, an independent uh, monetary policy to whatever the Fed is doing. And interesting enough, during those sessions, they did not start by saying that their own next steps depend on what the Fed does. Of course, we know that uh, at the very least, any central bank that would consider cutting rates or reversing the tightening would at the very least need to wait for the Fed to stop uh, hiking. Uh, but uh, certainly that is not the message that is being delivered at this stage by EM central banks for the most part. Um, in regarding the, the issue of um, uh, financial stability and uh, the recent events in the banking sector, both in the US and, and in Switzerland, interestingly enough, central banks uh, uh, across EM, they didn't seem to see this as a risk to financial stability in their own countries. They did not see the shift in deposits that uh, is, is uh, uh, being reported uh, in the US or in some places in Europe as, uh, as reaching them as a source of risk. So I would say that it's still the case that uh, EM central banks are looking at, uh, at issues that are quite idiosyncratic to their own uh, uh, e economies and their own stories, rather than looking at recent events in DM, either policies or uh, uh, banking systems as being the key sources of, uh, of risk. And then respect to your question regarding you know, how soon they can start uh, uh, cutting and whether they can diverge from whatever DM central banks do, certainly the sense is uh, that uh, the market has been pricing cuts uh, among central banks that have hiked the most. So you see Latin America, you see some countries in CE or even South Africa, the market starts to price in some cuts in the remainder of this year or next year. An interesting message from EM central banks is that they are in no rush for the most part of reversing the tightening cycle. Part of this probably is an exercise of trying to keep inflation expectations well anchored, but uh, no one seemed to be in any rush to start easing at this stage. And the message is that, you know, that the market is probably getting a bit ahead of itself in discounting these cuts, uh, in some cases already quite dramatically for the second half of this year. So this is, I think, a, 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 a very interesting point and I keep take away from all the EM central bank presentations that we saw in Washington, that some of this market pricing and some of these cuts are actually in our own uh, uh, forecast may need to be revisited uh, uh, if uh, in the end the conditions are not there for them to cut. Again, the conditions at the bare minimum is for the Fed to stop hiking and second, obviously, for inflation to start coming down. And as we have seen, yes, there is this inflation to speak of in emerging markets, but it's starting to you know, show up in rather sticky, particularly on the core side in many places. Thanks, Joyce. Thank you so much, Luis, for um, bringing us up to speed on this policy framework that emerging market central banks are looking at. I'd like to talk more about the local markets um, with Saad Siddiqui um, from our Emerging Market Strategy Group. So, Saad, do you see a respite from the EM weakness um, that we're, we've seen versus the dollar? Thanks, Joyce. So, the dollar has been weakening against EM currencies since 
fourth quarter of last year after having a very strong run of trend appreciation in the preceding few years. So many investors would have expected a dollar to catch a much bigger uh, bid, a safe haven bid after some of the banking stresses we had over the last month. But in fact, I think most investors were surprised at how muted some of those safe haven demand was for the dollar. Some of that could be because of the very rapid uh, policy response we had to backstop and to mitigate concerns of a broader contagion and a systemic banking crisis. But nonetheless, I think it does speak to the fact that um, you know, the dollar over on long-term metrics is looking overvalued. And on the flip side, a number of EM currencies uh, are also looking undervalued, coupled with the fact that in many countries right now in EM, we have very high real interest rates, very high nominal interest rates. And I think that is generating a significant buffer uh, for EM currencies here. You take currencies like the Hungarian forint, um, the Brazilian real, the Mexican peso, all of these have double digit policy rates right now. And I think that that makes a difference. Um, in addition, uh, if, you, if you take this group of high-yielding currencies across EM, on the whole, they don't have um, you know, a lot of foreign investor positioning either. You know, foreign investors uh, deleveraged out of EM uh, local markets and, and especially EMFX uh, in the last few years. So there's no real overhang right now uh, in our judgment of big carry trades that typically are unwound when you do have uh, these bouts of risk aversion. So overall, I think uh, EM currencies have a decent buffer here. That's not to say that in future episodes of stress that they're going to be completely uh, absolved from pressures. Uh, but um, as long as central banks don't cut rates prematurely, uh, I think um, you know, these bouts of volatility are probably going to be better tolerated in EM currencies than they have uh, in the past. How are you looking at risk appetite to add EM local markets? Because that came out pretty well in our client survey. Do you think that um, this optimism is warranted? That's right. So it was quite interesting to see in the uh, survey that we did uh, during uh, our conference that investors actually rank EM local markets as being one of their top picks, in fact, the top pick amongst fixed income asset classes. And that's not something we've seen um, uh, in, uh, kind of very frequently uh, in recent years uh, when we've done this uh, survey at our, at our conference. And I think it speaks to the fact that investors look at the large number of countries right now in emerging markets that have got double digit uh, policy rates. It's not just the frontier markets anymore that have double-digit uh, po policy rates at the short end of the curve. It's also a lot of the big mainstream liquid markets, whether it's Brazil or Mexico or, or Hungary, Colombia, and so on. And also on an ex-ante basis, uh, pretty high real rates as well that are edging up into the kind of mid-single-digit uh, territory. Uh, so I think investors look at that and they think that this is an opportunity that's not going to come by very often. Uh, and I think that 
uh, first of all, underpins um, their mindset to be a bit more bullish uh, on EM local markets. I think that bullishness is particularly concentrated in rates, and that's because we are seeing disinflation uh, begin to take place uh, in these emerging markets. I mean, admittedly, it's not taking place as quickly as investors would have liked, but it is taking place nonetheless. And central banks are also uh, emphasizing that um, you know they're done with their hiking cycles, generally speaking. And that means your upside on being received rates or long duration um, is, 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 is quite attractive uh, from here. Um, you know, that said, I think there are still a few markets where in the last few, you know, couple of months we have seen some upside surprises uh, to inflation. So the right strategy here in our minds is to have a concentrated uh, portfolio of long duration positions and receiver trades rather than being very diversified because you know if you look at um, you know, Central Eastern Europe, what's happening to inflation there versus the disinflation that we're seeing in a place like Brazil, I think we're seeing while on the way up, inflation was very highly correlated across uh, different markets and countries. On the way down, it seems to be a lot more dispersed. And I think that's how investors should um, uh, accordingly allocate their portfolios to you know, be, you know, have those long duration positions in markets like Brazil and Mexico, where uh, you know, we're more comfortable about where monetary policy is and we're a bit more comfortable about a disinflationary uh, trend ahead. Whereas um, if you take places in Central Eastern Europe like Hungary, uh, we're a lot less comfortable on uh, recent inflation dynamics there. And how much progress has been made on a common framework for sovereign debt restructured, which now has been under discussion for several years? So on the common framework and where do we stand with sovereign debt uh, restructuring in emerging markets. Look, overall, I think we're finally getting to the stage now where it's being, you know, widely accepted that the common framework in its current form is unlikely to deliver the kind of swift and effective results um, that were hoped. If you recall, this time last year, there was still hope, especially amongst, um, uh, you know, the kind of the official. Uh, sector, you know, G20 countries, that um, you know, the common framework could somehow still be salvaged in its current form, and they wanted to give it some time, and that's understandable. You know, there's a lot of political capital that was thrown behind uh, the G20 common framework, and therefore the main sponsors you know, wanted to give give it some chance and some time to see whether uh, it could deliver um, the results that they had expected. But fast forward a year, uh, I think the lack of results, especially in a case like Zambia, for example, uh, has now led to a more pragmatic consensus being adopted. That more pragmatic consensus is that um, the common framework uh, needs to have uh, kind of significant um, uh, amendments made to it. It needs to be um, kind of overhauled uh, in order to make it effective. And it was um, in accordance with that, that this new global sovereign debt roundtable, which includes uh, the IMF, the World Bank, 
G20, other official bilateral creditors, and uh, and also private sector representation uh, has really been trying to uh, figure out and forge a new path ahead. I think it was interesting that you know the common this um, sovereign debt roundtable did have a meeting during these uh, spring meetings that have just um, concluded, and the press release. Um, after their meeting, it only mentioned the common framework in passing uh, alongside other measures, uh, which suggest that the conversation now really has moved on. So that's kind of where we've made progress. But unfortunately, I think it's still too soon to come to, say, a new template that everyone can agree on. I think here that Sri Lanka and Zambia are two interesting case studies. Now, both of these countries have relatively complex debt stacks with a combination of official creditors, private creditors, and China is also a creditor in, in both of these uh, sovereigns. Um, Zambia took the G20 common framework route, and Sri Lanka has been uh, taking a different route outside of the G20 common framework. And it, interestingly, it seems that the path to resolution in Sri Lanka's case has been much quicker than in Zambia's case, uh, you know, and, and I think that again speaks to the fact that um, we're probably going to see in the interim period um, kind of a more dispersed type of approach taken by uh, the different sovereigns um, until we get to kind of a new consensus on a new template that uh, other countries uh, can also pursue. Well, thank you so much for joining our podcast. And thank you to Bruce, Jan, Luis, Jahangir, and Sa'ad for their insights and comments and the key takeaways. Well, the environment remains uncertain, but investors appear to be braced for the potential for more downside and policymakers are prepared to act quickly if necessary. So stay tuned for more episodes of All Into Account J.P. Morgan's Global Research Podcast Series as we explore the key macro and market trends impacting financial markets. Thank you to all of our listeners for joining today. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please read J.P. Morgan's research reports related to its contents for more information, including important disclosures. Copyright 2023, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved. This episode was recorded on April 19th, 2023.